Jiswaf Bixinski. The podcast. Part two. Art photography and drawings. According to many critics, art photography was the discipline in which Bixinski made his greatest achievements. What could Bixinski say to that? Withdraw from painting, which was his life but had so often been compared and contrasted with his photography and declared inferior, or sometimes even decried as kitsch. The short spell of his life he devoted to photography from 1953 to 1959 brought a wealth of solutions and an explosion of ideas at a high workshop standard quite enough to share between several photographic artists. Almost all of it came into being in the provincial and very poor town of Sanok, his hometown. Bixinski, the art photographer, is regarded above all as an avant-garde artist, and quite rightly, doing what nobody else had done before him, or achieving an entirely new result. However, it's also worthwhile seeing him as a maker of painterly portraits, figures, and landscapes, responsive to beauty and light. His wife, Zofia, was his principal model. He photographed her at various seasons of the year and in diverse light. Sometimes, he would have her like an actress in a sophisticated pose. At other times, he took a picture spontaneously, full of admiration for her beauty. It was a trend that ran alongside his experiments and sometimes intersected with them, at times turning into just an ordinary family photo, a souvenir with no particular attempt to achieve special effects in composition or illumination. At other times, it involved structural composition. She also posed for his strictly experimental photography in which only part of her face would be used. Almost the whole of Bixinski's photography could be classified as creative. He arranged the components of what eventually appeared in the photo. Sometimes, once he had established the scenography, he would wait for the right model or motif to turn up against the setup background. The way he worked as a photographer was not really very different from what he did in drawing or painting. Bixinski was simply an artist for whom the camera was a working tool in a certain brief period in his life. He was aware of the shortcomings of this tool and eventually in the late 50s, he came to realize that what he had in his heart and under his eyelids, to use his own phrase, could only be externalized by means of a pencil or a paintbrush. Following the death of Stalin, and the political thaw of 1955-56, and in opposition to previously prescribed socialist realism, Eastern European artists almost universally endorsed the Western avant-garde. Beksinski had already been experimenting with abstract compositions in his photography. He built up his relief pictures with many surfaces in search of an abundance of matter. The resources he applied served not only to create a pictorial object with an interesting texture, but chiefly to conjure up a specific atmosphere, idiosyncratic for this artist. 
The diversified surfaces of these pictures, with their roughness, elicit numerous free associations indicative rather of something dismal, a process of destruction. He wanted the process of destruction to disclose new values in the painting. He wanted to make the process of self-destruction connected with the passage of time. The work of art was to behave like the natural world, which is subject to continuous transformation. But he did not foresee that this inevitably random process would not necessarily reveal more interesting layers or make the work more dramatic. We should bear in mind that Bixinski was making his most expressive photographs in the same period that he was working on his abstract objects, as well as realistic drawings and sculptures in which the principal motif was the human or animal figure. The chief component of his work in sculpture is a set of heads somewhat reminiscent of skulls. All of them are deformed, and most have a compact shape pierced with numerous orifices. Some have been endowed with names, like Hamlet or Lady Macbeth. Following Henry Moore's example, he put a negative space into them. The sculpture does not fill the entire space, or it enters the space only partially. With its concave parts, the holes in it, it absorbs the space. You sense a sinister, stressful quality in these works, which is, of course, characteristic of his entire artistic legacy. In the 1950s, notwithstanding his marvelously developing photographic work, Bixinski started to concentrate more and more on drawing. Bixinski was interested in drawings from a young age. His mother kept his childhood drawings. She was the one who dreamed of her son becoming an artist and who bolstered his enthusiasm for artistic creativity. Around 1953, Bixinski returned to his childhood passion, but now with creative ambition. As with most young artists in this period, the trauma of the war, followed by Stalinist repression, triggered the need in him to articulate the appalling experiences he was going through to get them out of his system. It was a truly expressionist art, full of tortured, despairing, oppressed figures, prison cells, the barbed wire of concentration camps, prison bars, loneliness, poverty, old age, death, firing squads, clenched fists, and bayonets. Such motifs appear again and again, like a brazen refrain in this period of his work, which was spontaneous and still formally unsettled. But we also have a solitary violinist, a vocalist with a microphone, and a trumpeter looking as if he were sneaking in some unwanted, indeed prohibited jazz. Like a breeze from the free world into that tormented and enthralled reality. In this period too, we come across his first attempts to find formal solutions. Apart from the deformation characteristic of expressionism, 
In some of his work, Beksinski endeavored to affect simple geometrical shapes, calling to mind not cubism as such, but rather the work of Pablo Picasso. He had to square up to what contemporary art had said hitherto, and in particular, he had to comprehend and assimilate the work of Picasso and other artists in order to find his own form. He was beginning to understand more and more that the subject, the literary anecdote, was irrelevant in this respect. What he wanted was to find his own modern and fully independent pictorial manner for his drawings and paintings, just as other artists had done. And he knew this could be achieved in dialogue with other artists. There were three names he found most inspiring at the time, Pablo Picasso, Paul Klee, and Henry Moore. The master whom he always admired and regarded as one of the foremost contemporary artists was Tadeusz Borzowski. It was from him that Beksinski borrowed the idea to present the human figure as a puppet on a string and to depict a variety of lines and cords, hooks, nails, rags, and tensed ropes. He scrutinized the way Borzowski did his drawing with the use of a thin line. Like Borzowski, he gave his pictures fanciful names. His characters, often in arrangements of several figures, play out their silent dramas, their parody of real life. Usually, they would be attended by a sinister atmosphere, a lurking conflict, aggression, suffering, destruction, alienation. There would also be gestures, hugs, and liaisons, but never enough to deflate the tense atmosphere. It would all be pervaded by an eroticism with an aggressive sadomasochistic tinge. The figures would be filled up with smaller elements. These were mostly similar but miniaturized human figures or heads. Slowly he began combining his linear method of drawing figures with chiaroscuro. His objective was to endow the figure he was drawing, or at least part of it, with spatial, solid quality to make it concrete. These drawings would be the link between his purely abstract bas-relief pictures and his figural paintings. And finally, with his fantastic period. He did not assail the sculptural space with aggressive shapes, but by applying concave curvatures, drew the observer in through multifarious apertures. His figures cannot be stood upright, rested against something, or hung up. They have no foundation. They are incapacitated. They seem to be suffering all the time. A large number of his charcoal, pencil, pen and ink, and crayon drawings make up what is perhaps the bleakest part of Beksinski's work. The black that predominates in them, coupled with depressing motifs, such as fragments of heads with skin that is slashed or stitched up, an exorbitant number of wrinkles, snapped veins, tattered bodies on crosses, Shakespearean crowned heads, a man hanging on a hook, and a sexy girl with a knife in her hand. It's all overwhelming, horrifying, and evokes the question of what kind of insanity was their creator living in. However, 
this was probably the happiest period in the life of the Bixinski family. They loved each other, and bringing up their son brought them great joy. At last, Bixinski was earning money as an artist. The dingy shadow of a Lady Macbeth drawn in 1963 in brown crayon casts a strange stamp on his work in this period. Her figure, a dark, shapeless blot, seems to have evaporated out of her robe, which is the only evidence of her shape and existence, to seal virtually all of his work created in the 60s with a stamp of tragedy or even cruelty. This period marked a signal stage in the development of his painting. His first attempts to transpose the chiaroscuro modeling of his drawings into a color version came up against a multiplicity of problems. However, the errors and setbacks gave rise to a mature form unambiguously evolving towards the art of his old masters. This episode, which is part of a five-part podcast series, was produced and edited by Cesari Lersky and Diginet. The text is based on Vyaslav Banach's essay, Used with Permission, from the Historical Museum in Sanok, Poland, and Bosch Publishing House. Text read by Phil Shane. All music was composed and edited by Andrea Centazzo. All rights reserved. For more, please visit www.beksinski.gallery. Albums with Beksinski's art and reproductions of his paintings are also available at Amazon.com. Thank you.